that, uh, that uh, Clay was going to sing or something beforehand too, so I wasn't quite ready. Sorry about that. I thought he was going That's a joke. Well, it's, uh, it's exciting to be here with you guys um, in this new ministry, and I know it's not a new ministry for our church, but it is a new ministry for me. I know a lot of you guys have been meeting on some Saturdays, and I've been talking to uh, Seth about this for quite some time. I'd like to begin to do this, and um, as I'm getting older, to kind of pour my life into men in our church, and so this is exciting for me. Um, I want to thank all of our men's ministry team for all they've done, uh, especially Seth and Dustin, uh, and for allowing me the opportunity to be here and be with you guys. Um, I'm really juiced about this and energized uh, by seeing all you men here, and I pray that uh, you'll make it a, a priority uh, to be here over these next nine months, and maybe you'll bring uh, men that you know that don't know Christ. This is a great environment. Maybe a man that won't come to church or is not interested in that would love to come and have uh, breakfast and um, just enjoy some fellowship with some other men. So anyway, I hope you'll make a commitment to be here these whole nine weeks as much as you can and make this a real priority um, in your life. Um, if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, we'll, we'll get there in a little bit. It'll be a few minutes before we get there. But as we begin this morning, we begin this study together, let me just pray for us as well and commit our time to the Lord. Uh, Father, we love you. Uh, we worship uh, your great name. And we look to you and confess, Lord, as, uh, as men today, our desperate need of you. Uh, Father, I pray for each man here, for each marriage. Uh, we pray for our children, Lord. We pray for our grandchildren, for those who have great-grandchildren. Uh, Lord, we, we look to you for our work that you've given us to do, for ministries that we have. We pray that you'll strengthen us and make us faithful. Uh, Father, for the, we thank you for the work that you're doing within us to will and to do your good pleasure. We pray over these next weeks as we gather together as men to fellowship around the Word of God that you'll stir our affections for you that you'll use your word to shape us into the image of your son, that you'll make these uh, first Saturdays of the month uh, not just something to check off the schedule, but they'll be life-changing for us. We pray that you'll deepen our fellowship with you and with our brothers in Christ and make us men whose only boast is in you. As we open your word, Father, give us ears to hear and willing hearts to surrender to your will. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the NFL starts tomorrow. I guess it started Thursday night, if you could call it that. I watched some of that game. It wasn't very good. Um, here's uh, some, some good thoughts about the NFL. What do the Atlanta Falcons, Falcons and Possums have in common? They both play dead at home and get killed on the road. Um, how do you keep the Detroit Lions out of your front yard? Put up goalposts. <laughs> uh, what do you call 20 Vikings fans in the basement? A wine cellar. What's the difference between the Buffalo Bills and a dollar bill? You can still get four quarters out of a dollar. <laughs> uh, what happened to the joke that Jay Cutler told his receivers and went over their head? Um, let's see, go on down here. Gets, uh, let's see, some of these ones further down. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm coming to that. If you have a car containing a Cowboys running back, a Cowboys linebacker, and a Dallas Cowboys defensive back, who's driving the car? The cop. <laughs> Um, what does a Minnesota Vikings fan do when his team has won the Super Bowl? He turns off the PlayStation 3. <laughs> uh, did you hear the Detroit Lions don't, don't have a website? They can't string three W's together. <laughs> um, let's see. Where do you go in Chicago in case of a tornado? Soldier Field. They never get a touchdown there. That was true with Thursday night, by the way. 
Uh, why doesn't Toledo have a professional football team? Because then Cincinnati would want one. And here's, uh, this, this one isn't a, this, this one's a college one, but I like it. What do you call a genius sitting in the Texas A&M student section? Uh, a visitor. <laughs> All right, yeah, okay. Well, um, they do play today, I think, so we'll see. Uh, one of my favorite jokes, though, about football is uh, a guy said that he wanted to have four Dallas Cowboys be his pallbearers at his funeral. And the guy said, why would you want that? And he said, so they can let me down one last time. So I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan, so we'll see. Maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the year. But, you know, nobody likes to be let down by somebody else. Um, we don't like to let others down, and we don't like people to let us down. And uh, we don't want to do that. And I, and I pray for all of us here. We don't want to let our Lord down. We don't want to let our, our wives down. We don't want to let our children down. No, we don't want to let uh, one another down. We don't want to let our children and our grandchildren down. And in order for us to not let others down, um, we're going to have to man up. And uh, that's the title that we've given to this series. Actually, Jay Reisner came up with that. So if you don't like it, that's on Jay for coming up with that. But in order to not let people down around us, which is easy for us to do as men, uh, we have to man up. Uh, well, and that's interesting. We came up with that title, Man Up, or Jay did. And then I was doing some reading on just manhood and this topic. And Gavin Newsom, who is the governor of California... In an article I read online, he said, the two most dangerous words in the English language today are man up. Now, I can think of a lot worse ones than that, but to him, that's the most dangerous words in the English language is man up. And we're hearing a lot today about, um, you know, hyper-masculinity or toxic masculinity. It's a new word that's kind of being thrown around out there. And it's something that uh, is, is really ravaging our country, I think, in many ways. Um, and I think Newsom's comments kind of highlight that men in our nation are in trouble. And we're kind of being hit from all different sides. And, and masculinity is increasingly coming under attack. And there's increasing confusion about what it even really means. I think we all probably see that everywhere we go. Um, here's a, a couple of quotes I wanted to read that I've, I've run across. One man said this, We live in an age where many men don't grow up with a dad around. And that's a, a, the genesis of a lot of the problem where they don't regularly engage in traditionally masculine endeavors and where they're obsessed with their cell phones and computer games. They can use porn, but they have trouble talking to girls. They can see themselves as a hero in a video game, but being heroic in real life seems outside of their reality. They want to be masculine, but when they look at people who fit the bill, it seems to be impossible for them. So they start looking to change what masculinity means. They endeavor to create a weaker, less demanding, more feminized version of masculinity uh, that they can achieve. And I think we see that all around us. We live in an increasingly uh, feminized culture. Uh, men are being minimized and marginalized in our culture, and, and there's a lot of articles out there just about the emasculation of men in our culture today. And, and of course, on top of all that, we live in times of gender confusion. You know, gender is no longer binary. You know, male and female is in the scriptures. It, it's fluid. Um, I, I read an article sometime back that some places have 82 different gender identities that people can have. I mean, that just shows the just mass confusion we live in. And a lot of men today are confused and confounded. Um, you know, you see this on TV all the time. My wife even pointed this out to me the other night. She, we were watching different things, and there's commercials coming up about programs. 
<clears throat> Someone has said that you know, men on TV are wimpy, bumbling, disappointing, underachieving males. You know, women are kind of the heroes now, and men are just kind of these underachieving, kind of bumbling, disappointing uh, characters. Um, Al Mohler, who's a, a great thinker about our culture, says this. He says, in the context of this confusion, boys are especially vulnerable. The feminization of society mixed with confusing cultural signals has led many boys and young men to be uncertain and unaware of their masculinity and proper role. In a desperate search for a secure male identity, some are attracted to gross distortions. Some embrace a brutalized and arrogant posture, and certainly that's not what we're talking about in masculinity. While others retreat into insecure manhood, never understanding a man's responsibility to lead. So some people just kind of go to one extreme or the other, but they don't really know what it means to be a man. So confusion's rampant, and I think that leads to the question, is manhood even worth saving? Is it really that important? Um, is it really worth the trouble? Now, I think according to God's Word, nothing could be more vital than manhood because the first person that God created in His image uh, was the man. Uh, God created the man first, and He created the man to lead and to oversee and to rule over um, His creation. And we all know this nation's uh, families and churches rise or fall with depending on the quality of male leadership uh, within those uh, various institutions. So we need real, responsible, righteous men in our country. Uh, men who are passionate lovers of their wives, um, effective, faithful leaders, uh, good leaders in the home, uh, who have the respect of people around them and who are leaders in the community. That's what we need today um, in this culture. We need it I'm in the church. But, but that raises the question, and it's a, really, it's a very important one, and that is, but what makes a man a man? And what does a real man look like? I mean, what would we put on the list if we were making a list of what it looks like to be a real, authentic, godly man? Um, how do you and I know if we're measuring up to manhood? I mean, how would we recognize someone and say, that's a godly man or that's a man of God? What is the criteria that we would use? What does he look like? Now, that's what we're going to look at over the next nine Saturday mornings, the first Saturday of each month, Lord willing, between now and, and May. And the title for this particular series is Measuring Up to Manhood. And for, for those of you that are interested, we're going to be using just as kind of a general guide um, this book by Gene Getz. Now, this book came out in 1973. And Gene Getz actually came and spoke to the church I grew up at. Um, last week I was at Dallas Seminary and Gene Getz spoke in chapel. Um, he's probably 85 years old now, I would assume, something around there. He did a really good job speaking. But this book's called The Measure of a Man. So if you want to get a good book to read to follow along um, in this series, um, that, that would be a good one uh, for you to get. Now, I often heard growing up that there's a list of a lot of things a man should never do if he wants to keep his manliness intact, you know, if he wants to keep his man card, if you will. And some of them were real men don't cry, real men don't wear pink, real men don't eat quiche, and real men don't let other men eat quiche. So there's a lot of lists like that. Uh, but before we get to First, uh, to first Timothy, um, I want to just share with you, there's a list um, that I came across in some of my reading. Thomas Watson is a well-known Puritan, and he has a list of uh, a bunch of things, but he called it the godly man's portrait. And I thought I'd just read some of these. This was printed in 1666. And he says, a, a godly man is a man of knowledge, a man moved by faith, 
a man fired by love, a man careful about the worship of God, a man who prizes Jesus Christ, a man who serves God and not men, a man who can weep, a man who loves the word, a man of humility, a man of prayer, a man of sincerity, a heavenly man. That's a beautiful statement, a heavenly man, a zealous man, a patient man, a thankful man, a man who loves the saints, a man who does not indulge himself in sin, a man who's good in his relationships, a man who walks with God, a man who strives to be an instrument for making others godly. That's a great list, and he, he has even more, but those are the, uh, some of the ones on his list. But the portrait of a godly man. And that's what we want to develop here over these next nine weeks together. We're going to look at how each of us measure up to manhood, and we're going to use the only measure that really counts, which of course is uh, uh, the Word of God. So we're going to measure our lives over these next nine Saturdays against this divine plumb line. And to do that, we're going to use 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, what we have here are 19 spiritual qualifications or character qualifications for those who will be in leadership in the church. And this is going to serve, again, as our template or our model over these next few weeks. And we'll see here that to measure a man, God does not look at outward appearance. He doesn't look at physical prowess or financial success or intellectual power, or any of those other uh, things that we might focus on. God looks at the heart, because you'll notice when I read this list in a moment, it's all about character. And he says at the beginning, it's a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. But then he says an overseer must be. So these are things that an elder or a leader must be, but these are characteristics that every other Christian man ought to be. They're things we all ought to aspire to. So if these are the, the criteria to be a leader, then this must be the recipe, if you will, or the template for a, a godly man. So we're going to look at this as kind of the model of maturity, uh, the hallmarks of manhood, the profile of maturity. And really, it, we're going to kind of use this summary statement that I thought up this last week. A real, authentic man is a man who has Christ-like character. That's really what a real man is. Jesus was God, perfect, and a perfect man. And so a real and authentic man is a man who has the character of Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll see here in these verses. So let me read uh, 3, 1 to 7 here in 1 Timothy and uh, we'll, we'll get started. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, and you can use the word overseer, pastor, um, elder, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred by the devil, incurred by the devil. Then he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." Now, that's quite a list, isn't it? And I think, again, that's a standard that we ought to all aspire to. Those are goals for every man who's a follower 
uh, of Jesus Christ. Now, as we get started this morning, I want to issue one caveat here, and I want to read something that Gene Getz has in his book that was really, I think, important as I read it this last week. I mean, he said this, as you evaluate your life based on these qualities, be on guard against discouragement. Everybody hear this. This is important. See this as a great opportunity to become the man God really wants you to become. Remember that Satan may be looking over your shoulder and whispering in your ear, you'll never be that kind of man. You've blown it too badly already. There's no hope for you. You'll never break out of your old sin patterns. When Satan tempts you with this thought, meditate on the words which were penned by the half-brother of Jesus. Submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Listen to God's voice saying, I love you no matter what you've done, no matter where you are in your spiritual growth, no matter what your feelings, I'm on your side. I've not rejected you, you are my child. You can become a man of God, and I'm here to help you. And I, I say that because some of you here may have blown it badly in your life. You may be blowing it right now, and you think, man, this is, this is a standard I can't attain. Um, you're going to uh, leave here maybe some of these weeks discouraged. What I want to encourage you to do is to not look back but look ahead and commit from this time forward with God's power to become the man that God wants you to be. Because we can wallow in discouragement if we want to about what we're not and what we haven't been in the past. That's not going to get us anywhere. And I don't care how old you are here today. Um, you can take up the mantle today and you can go forward and, and become who uh, God wants you to be. Now, as we look at these verses here in 1 Timothy, they, they talk about every area of life, our home life, our public life, our church life. Um, they talk about our morality, our temperament, um, our family, our reputation. They really touch every area of life. We're going to spend this morning on just one of these 19. You say, well, we've got nine weeks. How's this going to work? Well, some weeks we're going to bunch some of them together, and some weeks we'll just look at one of them. And so this morning, just the first one, and you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 2, it says, he must be above reproach. Now, that's kind of the umbrella term, if you will, or the overarching summary standard to be a leader. But again, it's something we should all aspire to. And he says, above reproach, and really, this is the result of living out all the rest of these things. So if you live out everything that's under this, then you'll really be someone uh, who's above reproach. So this kind of frames this whole list, really, that's here uh, before us. Over in uh, the book of Titus, uh, Paul uh, wrote to Titus and also gave Titus a list. And in Titus 1.7, he says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's uh, steward. Um, here's what John MacArthur says about this. He says, The reason this qualification is called for at the pastoral level is because we're to be the example that others are to follow. And if being above reproach is part of that example, then guess what's required of you? The same trait. So if leaders are to have this, and they're to be the ones that others follow, then that means this is a trait that God wants to see um, exemplified in the life of every man. Now, this idea of above reproach is kind of a, a complex of ideas. It literally means without blame or unaccused. In other words, no accusation against you uh, will be valid. Um, it, it's, it was used in that day, this Greek word was, of a garment without any folds in it. You know, when you have a garment, it's got some folds. You can kind of hide something in the fold. But a garment without any folds, it was kind of laid out there, and you could see all of it. 
And when applied to our personal character, it means that we don't have any hidden pockets of sin uh, in our lives. In other words, we're open and transparent. We are what we appear to be. It's like a young man that was interviewing for a job at a store, and the, the man, the owner, said, if I hire you to work in my store, will you be honest and trustworthy? And the young man said, I'll be honest and trustworthy whether you hire me or not. And I like that. I mean, it's not just trying to be something to get some gain. It's just what we really are, um, essentially, within our character. A man who, who's above reproach is real and authentic, and he's consistent um, in his character. Uh, this word that's used here, it's the Greek word uh, anegletos. And here's what one writer says. He says, anegletos signifies that's what, that which can't be called to account. It means having no blot on your life for which one can be accused, arraigned, or disqualified. It's not simply an acquittal, but the absence of even a valid accusation. In other words, someone can't really make a valid accusation against any uh, point of your life. So it's an unquestioned integrity. It's an unimpeachable, irreproachable character of life. In other words, our life isn't marred by any area of disgrace. There's a story I read years ago, and I haven't been able to validate whether it's true. Some people say it's an apocryphal story. Some people say it's true. Some people say it's kind of half true. But I'll tell it anyway, because it's a great story. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, who's the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, he loved practical jokes. And um, as a joke one time, he sent a telegram to 12 of his best friends, and they were all men of great virtue who were respected in society in London. And the telegram simply said this to all 12 of them, flee at once, all has been discovered. And to his shock, within 24 hours, all 12 of them had left the country. <laughs> now he just did it as a joke, but these guys know, uh-oh, <laughs> I've been found out. And, and the point of that story is that many people, maybe many of us here today, have dark secrets that haunt our conscience. And if you were to get a note that said, flee at once, everything's been discovered, where would your mind go? Uh-oh. You know, that thing I've been doing has been found out, and I've been uh, discovered. We're afraid. I think a lot of men probably live afraid of being found out because there's some hidden pocket in their life uh, of sin. Another idea that's, that's found in this idea of, of above reproach, literally the word could be translated not to be taken hold of. In other words, there's nothing in my life that someone could grab hold of. It's been said like this, there's no handle in your life. It's not like you're a, a pot that's got a big handle that someone can immediately come and grab onto this handle and bring a valid accusation against your life. It means that no one can legitimately bring any charges against you that will stick. Uh, they may accuse you, and certainly people can do that, but your contact, conduct will eventually acquit you and show that you're blameless. Back in uh, 1948, I think it was, a DuPont scientist discovered Teflon. And it was used for a lot of different things, but finally it was used in pans. And then I fi think they figured out it was really, really bad for you, so I don't think they use it anymore, but probably all of us ate off Teflon pans in the day. But back in the 1980s, President Reagan became known as the Teflon president. 
And there was a, a woman, actually I think it was Pat Schroeder, and she was cooking eggs one morning and in a Teflon pan, and she thought of how President Reagan was like that, and she coined that phrase that he was like those eggs that wouldn't stick. He's the Teflon president because criticism and blame never seemed to stick against President Reagan. Now, what this is saying to us this morning is we want to be Teflon men, if you will, that there's not any charge against us in our lives that we'll be able to stick. Uh, the Living Bible says this, a good man, it's, uh, the, the man above reproach is a good man whose life cannot be spoken against. So no questionable conduct, no secret sins, no deliberately unresolved conflicts. Now, there may be unresolved conflicts because we may not, the other person may not want to resolve it, but no deliberately unresolved conflicts in our lives. Be at peace with others as much as it depends on us. In other words, your life is so consistent, your reputation is credible, you're an example worth following. And every one of us should want to be that. Um, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, someone said about him, his was a life worth looking into. We ought to all want to be like that, that as our grandchildren see us or our children, that we, we have a life that, that's worth looking into uh, to see uh, how God is at work. We don't make the gospel look fake, I think would be another way to put this, by you know, teaching one thing and kind of living another thing. Now, obviously, above reproach here does not mean that we're flawless or faultless. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here because that's an unreal expectation for any human being. One man says it like this, he's not flawless, but he's faithful in the private life of his marriage and his home, and he's worthy of imitation in his public life and his character. Reminds me of what Jesus said when he saw Nathanael. Remember in John chapter 1, when he saw Nathanael, he says, Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. And that's the way we ought to be in life, with not any guile, no hidden pockets of sin, not, not, not someone that the, the charges can le be legitimately brought against us. Again, it doesn't mean we're sinlessly perfect, but it does mean uh, that we live a model Christian life and we have a good reputation. And think about this, we have a good reputation and we actually deserve it. Some people have a good reputation, just like those 12 men, but they don't really deserve it. They know what's really going on. Uh, there's a story from several years ago in Palm Beach, or in uh, Long Beach, California. A guy went in to get some chicken. He was going on a date and uh, pulls up there and gets some chicken for him and his date late one afternoon. And uh, the young woman at the counter inadvertently gave him a sack that contained all the proceeds or the money from that day of the store instead of the chicken. Well, the guy goes out to get to the picnic place, and he, he gets out there and opens the sack and sees thousands of dollars in this bag. And so immediately, he goes back to uh, the place where he purchased the chicken. And he goes in and uh, asks to see the manager, and the manager's in there just pacing the floor. You can imagine. He realizes what's happening. That money's long gone. And the guy goes in and gives him the money and, and says, here it is. You know, it's all there. And the manager's just thrilled to death. And so this man leaves and walks back out to his car, and the manager follows him out there. And he says, man, this is great. He says, you must be the most honest, squeaky clean man in all of Long Beach, California. He says, let me call the newspaper. I want to have your picture taken and put in the local newspaper. You're the most honest man I've ever heard of. To which the guy quickly responded, oh, no, no, don't do that. And he leaned closer and said, you see, the woman I'm with is not my wife. See, she's somebody else's wife. 
You can look good, right? A lot of times we can look good, we can look clean on the outside, we can look like we're the most honest person that ever lived. But there's things about our lives that we know about that are hidden, that could be charges, that could be uh, brought against us. We look good, but there's serious reproach in our lives, and we know about it. I want to just uh, close here with some kind of diagnostic questions for you to think about. I got these from Tim Challies, and he, he asks these. Just, just sit there for a minute and think about these. Let them kind of soak in. Are there any ongoing sins in your life that would bring shame to you, your family, and your local church if they were made public? That's a good question. Is there anything hidden in your life? If it was brought public, it would really bring shame to you, to your family, your church. Are there any parts of your life you deliberately hide from other people? You may hide them from your wife. You may hide them from other people at work. It's a good question. Number two, do you know what sins you're particularly prone to? I hope we all know that. We know ourselves. What are the sins you're prone to? Probably for each of us, there's kind of one or two things that maybe are kind of besetting sins in our life. And then he says, and do you have measures in your life to guard against the temptation to those sins? So know yourself and know your situations and put measures in place to guard against temptation to those sins. Uh, number three, are you taking advantage of God's means of grace? Are you regularly attending church and participating in the life of the church? Do you have times of private and family worship? It's really important. Now, I appreciate you guys being here this morning. And I know most of you guys are here regularly at church, but if you're not... These are the means of grace that God has given us to help us grow, to be with God's people, um, have times of, of private worship ourselves, times of family worship. Those of you that are younger, um, your children are still at home. Uh, take time to have times of, 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 public wor of, of private worship with them and family worship as you read the Bible. Uh, maybe sing some songs together and begin to, uh, to, to put into their life and into their heart uh, the Word of God and, and love for that and the fear of God in their lives. Uh, here's a, a fourth thought. Do you think your life right now is pleasing to God? That's a really good question. When it's not, are you quick to seek forgiveness of both man and God and dis display repentance by making significant changes? So all of us, you know, none of us are going to be perfectly pleasing to God, but overall is your life pleasing to God? And when it's not, do you seek forgiveness from other people and from God? And do you, make, uh, do you repent and seek to make changes in your life? And then here's one final thought. This is, a, this is searching. If your close friends or people in the church heard charges against you, would their reaction be, that's not possible, or I knew it? <laughs> What would, the, what would this response say about you? Now, that's an interesting thought. If some charge was, was leveled against you, would people automatically say, that's impossible, or man, I knew it. I knew there was something wrong. I thought about this story uh, this week, and I had an old friend named Harold Wilmington, and he came and spoke here years ago several times. Great, great friend, really one of my mentors, probably say along with Dr. Toussaint. And he was, one of the, he was the second guy that Jerry Falwell hired when it was called, uh, I, think, I think, Liberty Bible College or whatever, which is now Liberty University. Um, Elmer Towns was the first guy that Falwell hired, and, and Dr. Wilmington was the second guy. And um, I got to go up there and see him some different times and meet Jerry Falwell back before he passed away. And, and uh, 
Dr. Wilmington would tell me all kinds of funny stories about the, the, all the years they had there together. But he told me something one time. And he, we, we would, he would come here and speak, and we'd drive down to Dallas to a meeting, and he'd just tell stories the whole way down. I loved it, man. There were some great ones. But he told me one time, he said, you know, I know Jerry Falwell. He goes, I know his strengths and weaknesses, and I know he's not perfect. But he said, Jerry Falwell is the, the greatest man of integrity, he said, I've ever known in my entire life. And he goes, I've seen the guy in every kind of situation you could see him in. And he said this, he said, if I saw Jerry Falwell walking out of a hotel with a woman who wasn't his wife in the evening, the first thing that would come to my mind is there has to be some explanation other than what I'm seeing. In other words, that's the kind of confidence that he had. And it wasn't blind, but he had that kind of confidence that there's got to be some other explanation because he knew the integrity of this man. And that goes to that question is, would people say if they heard an accusation, that's not possible, or I knew it? Dr. Wilmington, he decided, no, it's not possible. Something else is going on here other than what I see. Well, those are things for us to all to think about. I pray we'll take it to heart because if you and I are going to measure up the manhood, that's really where it starts. That's the first thing that's listed here. We're above reproach. There's not any hidden pockets of sin in our lives that if other people found them out, uh, we'd be totally disgraced. There's nothing in our life that uh, people can come along and get a handle on in our life to bring valid accusation against us. We have to be above reproach. That's the umbrella. No hidden folds, no charges that'll stick, a good reputation to have a life that's worth uh, other people looking into. Now, I want to close with this this morning. I'm going to do this every week. If all of us are honest... We all know that none of us measure up to God's perfect standard. I hope there's nobody here that's foolish enough to think they do. All of us are sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. We all miss the mark. And that's why all of us, no matter how sterling our character may be, all of us need a Savior. And the only one who can be our Savior is one who himself is sinless. And the only sinless one is the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's blameless, who could come and take our sin and die for us on the cross. The sinless one died for sinners. So if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you've never given up on yourself and your own ability to be right before God, then as we pray here in just a moment, you need to come to Jesus Christ and trust in Him and take Him to be your Savior from sin. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And then as you yield to Him, He will empower you then to begin to live this kind of life. But if you try to live this kind of life without the Lord Jesus, first of all, you're going to fail. Secondly, it might lead you to just think you're self-righteous in some way. No, the first step is to come to the cross to realize that you're a sinner, you have nothing to offer to God but your sin. And take Jesus Christ uh, to be your Savior. But once we do that, then we can be energized by God's Spirit and be on this path to being men uh, who, are, who are above reproach. Well, let me pray for us, and I think there's uh, some questions at our, our tables. Is that right, Seth, for guys to discuss? So let me, let me pray for us, and Seth will come up and explain that to us. Well, Father, we come before you this morning as um, men who love you and men who desire to walk uh, more closely with you. And we ask, Father, that you'd search our hearts this morning to see if there be any wicked way in us. And Father, help us to be honest with you about things that we're hiding in our lives, about areas of our lives where accusations could be made against us.
where, Father, we know down in our own heart they'd stick if they were brought. Father, I, I pray for each, each man here, Lord, that we'd be honest with ourselves and with you. And that we would avail ourselves, Father, of the means of grace that you've given to us. Gathering with your people regularly in church. Private time of, of worship and study of the scripture. Family time together. Where we gather around uh, the word of God. Father, encourage us today, I pray. Strengthen us. Father, we pray that by your spirit you'd lead us in the way everlasting. Father, we thank you for all these things and all God's men said, amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys again. God bless you guys for being here. And uh, we're, uh, we're going to look next week at our, at our family life, our home life. So we'll, uh, we'll pick up there next time, next month. I mean, not next week, next month. All right. God bless you guys.